here's the exact wording of a bereavement or a sympathy card that I picked up not too long ago. You know, looking through the card rack, trying to find a, a, a good one, the perfect fit. This is one that I picked up. The cover was fairly generic. Some, you know, pictures of flowers or whatever it was. It said something like, with our sympathies on the cover. But inside, this is what it said. Hoping that it brings you comfort to remember that your loved one is now beyond hurt, beyond worry, in a place of perfect peace. Let me say that again. The inside of the card said, hoping that it brings you comfort, the one who was grieving, the one who lost a loved one, to remember that your loved one is now beyond hurt, beyond worry, in a place of perfect peace. To be clear, this was not an explicitly religious card in the sense that anywhere on the card it mentioned God or include a Bible verse. It, it, it had neither. It did not, uh, it did not, it was not produced by an overtly Christian publisher. I could look on the back and see that it wasn't. But clearly this card was making an overtly religious or spiritual statement. It was an attempt to provide comfort to a grieving individual or individuals by reassuring the recipient with a declaration derived from faith. Now, I have no problem at all with faith declarations. I use them all the time. (laughs) Every Sunday morning, in fact, uh, I talk about faith declarations. I make faith declarations. My problem with the card was with the basis for this belief. The belief that your loved one is now beyond hurt, beyond worry, in a place of perfect peace. Undoubtedly, that's what we believe people want to hear in a time of loss. And for the most part, that's probably true. Most people do want to believe this. But all of us know wanting something to be true doesn't make it true. The card itself simply did not provide any justification for this belief about the one who had passed. This morning, sacred scripture is calling us to believe. The word of God is calling us to believe. And it's calling us to believe something about death and destiny that most people do not want to hear, including us at times. Look with me at Matthew chapter 8. Listen to the words of Jesus here. We're looking at verses 11 and 12 of Matthew chapter 8. 11 and 12. This passage, of course, is from our Bible reading plan from this last week. Uh, Many of you were already there reading through chapters 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12, I believe, from Matthew's gospel. And this is what Jesus tells those around him. He says, Matthew 8, verses 11 and 12, I tell you, many will come from east and west 
and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. These two verses are obviously part of a larger context, and we'll, we'll come to that in just a moment. Uh, we might say, we should say that these verses are part of a, of larger, a larger contexts, plural. That is not only the immediate context of the verses before and after, but also the book of Matthew, for example. The other gospels, the New Testament, as well as the Old Testament. All of, all of these are the contexts of Scripture that help us do what we should do with any verse, that is, interpret Scripture with Scripture. Interpreting Scripture with Scripture. So let's look at together at those contexts as we consider three key ideas presented in verses 11 and 12. Those ideas are, take a look, the banquet, the sons, and the darkness. The banquet, the sons, and the darkness. Let's see how better understanding these concepts can help us better understand the passage as a whole and understand its ultimate significance. So let's begin by asking, what does God's word tell us about, number one, the banquet? The banquet. That's what Jesus is describing here in verse 11. You see that? Verse 11, a banquet. This is not only a feast, if you can picture it, with Old Testament servants of God like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, typically called the patriarchs, right? Patriarchs of the Jewish faith. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's not simply a feast with them, but better still, it's a feast in the kingdom of heaven. That is, when the kingdom is fully realized... This banquet will take place. Now, Jesus himself will go on to speak in parables about another banquet, a wedding feast specifically, in both chapters 22 and 25 of this gospel. So it's a theme that he continues to work out and weave into his teaching. But I believe all the imagery here, even though there's not a lot given to us in these in verse 11, I believe all of this imagery, whenever Christ speaks about the banquet, the feast, is based on an amazing passage from the prophet Isaiah. 700 years before the time of Christ, this is what the prophet declared. Take a look. On on this mountain, the Lord, Yahweh of hosts, will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well and refined. Brothers and sisters, this is the table that you want to be at. <laughs> it is. This is, uh, this is good stuff. I mean, he is stressing here how rich this banquet is. Verse 7, and he will swallow up on this mountain... This is the better part. He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. 
He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord Yahweh will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. Yahweh has spoken. It will be said on that day. Just picture the table. Just picture those sitting around the table. Just think those from whom the shadow of death has been removed. Just think about them exclaiming this. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. This is Yahweh. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. Wonderfully, all of this imagery is not confined to the prophet Isaiah. This banquet, uh, the, the wedding feast that Jesus talked about, the defeat of death, the wiping away of all tears. In fact, all of it's found in the closing chapters of the book of the Revelation. There it's proclaimed, come, the wedding feast, the wedding supper of the Lamb is prepared. You see, all of these images images weave together. They're all different ways of describing the same reality. Why describe this blessed future? No more tears, no more death, richness. Why describe it with this image of a feast? Well, think about it. The feast or the banquet is the perfect image to communicate three things. Eternal fellowship eternal nourishment and eternal joy or celebration in light of the grace of God, the salvation of God. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation, the table guests in Isaiah said. Will you be there at the table? Will you be there to receive that nourishment in that fellowship with great joy and celebration? However we want to think about it. You might think, well, what, what are these, what are these heaven, like, what are like the heavenly, like, utensils made out of? Like, is this, are these like eternal forks and spoons and knives? And see, you're missing the point at that point. The imagery, take it and receive it, right? Fellowship, nourishment, joy. Whatever the table looks like, whatever the feast looks like, doesn't matter. Because those things will be there in abundance, And you will be able to partake of those things forever and ever. Now, I also want us to consider another concept here. Number two, consider the sons. You may have noticed the contrast presented in our main verses between the many who are coming from east and west and the sons of the kingdom mentioned in verse 12. See that contrast? Many coming from east and west, sons of the kingdom. Who are these sons of the kingdom? Well, the phrase is used in other places to refer to disciples of Jesus. But we know that's not the case here because look at verse verse 10. Verse 10 actually identifies this group as Israel. And this is strengthened, this idea, this interpretation is strengthened by the context here, the broader context. It's a context about that is concerned with astounding faith, remarkable faith. But specifically and scandalously, this remarkable faith is the faith of a Gentile. And not just any Gentile, 
a Roman centurion. That is, a soldier in charge of 100 Roman troops. Position of privilege and honor, his rank within the Roman Empire. This is him coming to Jesus. But look with me at the whole account, verses 5 through 13. When he, Jesus, had entered Capernaum, there by the Sea of Galilee, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled. And said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then turning back, remember he turned to his disciples to tell them that? Turning back, he said to the centurion, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Wow, what an amazing account. Now, I love the fact to start out with that Jesus is not concerned about political correctness in terms of this foreign agent of an occupying power. What do you mean, heal your servant? You fascist dog. I'm not coming to your house. How dare you come into the Holy Land? How dare you take over our country? How dare you do this? I won't tolerate it. That's not Jesus. Jesus doesn't see this man in that way. He sees simply a man in need speaking for a man in need. A human being coming to him in faith. For Jesus, it isn't this man's ethnicity or rank or political loyalties that distinguish him. It is his faith. And he wants to take the time to make sure that he holds this man up, a despised man, by the people around him foreign agent of an occupying power, man of violence, carrying a sword with him. He holds this man up for all to see as an example of faith, an example of trust. He, this man trusts that Jesus simply has to say the word and the servant will be healed. Wow, what faith. May each of us be distinguished in that way, right? Do you want to be distinct for that reason? That you're known as a person of faith, a man or woman of faith in this way? May it be so by God's grace. But look at how Jesus also uses this opportunity with so many Hebrew onlookers present to compare this Gentile's faith with the all too common faithlessness of so many Jews. 
And this faithlessness was best exemplified in their leaders, so many of their leaders. Earlier in this same gospel, John the baptizer pointed out the same faithlessness or we might say misplaced faith or misplaced trusts. He said this, take a look, chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. But when he, John, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That is, if you're truly repenting, live that way. Live a life of repentance. Let it be seen in how you live your life. Do not presume to say to yourselves. John knows how they're thinking. He dealt with it every day. Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, says John, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Instead of trusting in God's promises and the promised one to come, so many of these leaders and so many of those they led were trusting in their religious routines. They were trusting in their religious pedigree. After all, they were sons of the kingdom, right? They were sons of the kingdom. You see, the contrast here between Jews and Gentiles is a contrast presented in many places throughout Matthew's gospel. Maybe you picked up on it or you are picking up on it as you are reading. If not, I want to sensitize you to that this morning. So you're going to be looking for it as you're reading through Matthew's gospel. This contrast between Jewish Jews and Gentiles. For example, one of the passages that you read this last week on Thursday specifically Chapter 11, verses 22 through 24. In that passage, Jesus told those faithless people in Capernaum, the faithless of Capernaum, he said it would be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon and more bearable for the land of Sodom than for them. Notice those are all Gentile lands, right? non-Jewish lands. Those are all Gentile lands. How could he say this? How could he say that it would be more bearable for these Gentile, these pagan cities, than for Capernaum, a Jewish city, an Israelite city? It's because, as Jesus goes on to say, these pagan cities would have repented if Jesus had been been doing the same miracles in their midst. And then what does he go on to do in chapter 12? He goes on to make the same point. This time he uses more Gentiles. He says the men of Nineveh repented when Jonah came to him, came to them. Why won't you do the same? He said even the queen of Sheba, queen of the south, came eagerly to hear Solomon's wisdom. What did Jesus say? I tell you, something greater than Solomon is here. Something even better than Solomon. But what was was Capernaum doing? What was Bethsaida doing? What was Chorazin doing? These cities that saw Jesus, they experienced his miracles. They were hard-hearted. They were faithless. 
And it's that, that note of condemnation that brings us to a final point. Number three, the darkness. That theme of judgment is unmistakable in our main passage, isn't it? Verses 11 and 12. Look back at verses 11 and 12. So, while this Gentile centurion had demonstrated remarkable faith in Christ, sadly, there had also been a remarkable amount of hard-heartedness toward Christ from the Jews, among the Jews. We should ask, what will be the ultimate result of such unbelief? Jesus tells us here, doesn't he? The ultimate result of such faithlessness The place where that faithlessness leads is clear in verse 12. The sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, consider that imagery. Far outside the illuminated banquet hall, full of faith-filled celebration joy and fellowship, there is a deep darkness where exactly the opposite is taking place. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. The first is an expression of grief. The second is actually an expression of anger. We know that from many places where gnashing of teeth is used in Scripture. The book of Job, the book of Psalms, particularly Psalm 112, verse 10. And even in the book of Acts, chapter 7, verse 54, when they were gnashing their teeth at Stephen. Rage. Anger. In terms of judgment, darkness, this idea would have been a very familiar image to Jesus' listeners, especially the educated. The prophets of the Old Testament often spoke about darkness. They spoke about darkness and the day of Yahweh, Joel 2.31. It was a common image, a common uh, theme when it came to talking about the coming judgment of God. And Jesus will talk again about this outer darkness in chapter 25, verse 30. And, and, And interestingly, he also talks about this darkness at the end of his account of the wedding feast, the parable of the wedding feast. This is the same destiny for those who are removed from the wedding feasts. But he also demonstrates, throughout Matthew's gospel, Jesus demonstrates that this imagery of darkness is just one way of describing God's ultimate judgment against the faithless. How do we know that? Well, we know that because uh, it's, it's clear from the way weeping and gnashing of teeth is also connected... In your chapter for tomorrow, chapter 13 of Matthew. That, those images of weeping and gnashing of teeth, of grief and anger, are seen there, but they're connected in chapter 13 to a destiny in a fiery furnace. Not outer darkness, it's a fiery furnace there. And it fits with the parable. It talks about the tares being thrown, the wheat and the tares, right? The wheat and the weeds being separated from one another, clearing them out. And where do the weeds go? They go into a fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
Fire, in fact, is the more common image of judgment in Matthew's gospel, more so than the darkness. John the Baptist, you might remember, spoke about an unquenchable fire of judgment in chapter 3, verse 12. Jesus spoke about the hell or Gehenna of fire in chapter 5, verse 22. We talked about that last week. And Jesus talked about the fate of the faithless in the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels in chapter 25, verse 41. He goes on to describe that eternal fire as an eternal punishment. Chapter 25, verse 46. You see, both are the same. It's the same destiny, just described with different imagery. Each image is meant to convey something, communicate something about the awfulness of that fate. Brothers and sisters, friends, this was and this is the warning of Jesus Christ. When it comes to your spiritual condition, take a look. Misplaced trust leads only to eternal exclusion. Misplaced trust leads only to eternal exclusion. It's not a phrase that we often think about when we think about one's eternal destiny. But eternal exclusion is the theme here, is the idea here. So many of Jesus' Jewish listeners place their trust in their own religious accomplishments or their ancestry. They were included for that very reason, weren't they? Some even claim to follow Jesus. Lord, Lord, did we not do this? Lord, Lord, did we not say this? Lord, Lord, did we not go here for you? He said in chapter 7. They even claim to follow Jesus, but they follow on their own terms and not his. And so what is the result of pushing away Jesus in this life? Not surprisingly, it is an eternity away from Jesus. Does that sound strange or unreasonable to you? Does not. What is the result of pushing away Jesus in this life? Not surprisingly, it is an eternity away from Jesus. That's why, that's what the outer darkness signifies. Yes, the image does convey the sense of eternal confusion, groping, blindness, disorientation. Absolutely. But taken within the context here, along with this banquet, it inescapably, this picture of darkness, paints a picture of awful exclusion from fellowship, nourishment, and joy. It's no wonder that the Apostle Paul would later describe the fate of the faithless in these words. He said, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. That is the outer darkness. So, we stop. We take we take a minute to think about this question of why is this concept so important for us today? What do we do with what God has provided for us? 
what he's revealed to us. What the words of Jesus, this has come right from the lips of Jesus. What do we do with this? Well, let me suggest two reasons for you. Two reasons why this is so important for us today. First of all, this is important because the imagery here describes a very real and truly awful fate. And because the imagery here describes a very real and truly awful fate, we need to be honest about the destiny of those in our circle. We need to be honest. There are popular caricatures of hell out there. There are popular caricatures of hell in our society. You can probably think of them, right? Popular caricatures of hell. (laughs) You know, these popular ideas that we see in cartoons and all sorts of things. There are even caricatures within the church that make their way over time in and out of churches different areas have these ideas these think this thoughts about how they depict hell but a right understanding of the imagery that's used in God's word a right understanding of this imagery that's used to describe eternal punishment combined with a right understanding of God's holiness of God's justice combined with a right understanding of the truly awful nature of sin, what we might call the sinfulness or the utter sinfulness of sin, when we put these things together, it does not lead to a softening of this difficult reality. In fact, we recognize it as something far worse than an eternity of seared flesh. What the Bible describes about this eternal destiny of the faithless is far worse than an eternity of seared flesh. If you want to think about it in those, what I would call caricatured terms of misusing biblical imagery. It's far worse. As we've seen this morning, it is an eternity of grief and anger in a place of ultimate exclusion. Try to wrap your mind around that for a minute. Grief and anger in a place of ultimate exclusion. Now, to be clear, this is not godly grief. This is not godly anger at ourselves because we didn't do God's will. No. It is more likely grief and anger because our will has been frustrated. It is grief and anger because we believe we deserve better. Isn't that why we so often struggle with the concept of hell? We somehow think it's unfair. Because somehow we deserve better. Because somehow things aren't really that bad. Our sin really isn't that bad. This is what Jesus is confronting here. We need to be honest about it. Yes, people do want to believe their loved one is now beyond hurt, beyond worry, in a place of perfect peace. But apart from the one who who actually rose from the dead, as a matter of history, there is no basis for that belief. 
There is no basis apart from Christ's for that kind of place of peace. Instead, this same historical figure, Jesus, who is alive today, who actually rose from the dead, he calls us to believe, yes, in a place of perfect peace, and his heart longs that we would be there with him. But he also calls us to believe in the reality of a destiny about which, frankly, most people do not want to hear. And so God asks us through his spirit this morning, Will you pray for those around you in light of this fate? Will you reach out to those around you in light of this fate, this awful fate, the fate of all who trust in something or someone other than Jesus Christ? Second, why is this so important for us to understand this passage, this uh, concept of the outer darkness and its context? Well, this concept of the outer darkness is also important for us because it is intended to sober us about our religious confidence. It is intended to sober us about our religious confidence, to to give us a clear-headedness to see and understand clearly. Jesus was confronting those who trusted in themselves. We've already seen that in this passage. It's a theme in Matthew's gospel. He's confronting those who trusted in themselves to the degree that they most likely imagined that they would have a place of honor at that table next to the patriarchs in the kingdom of God. That's how they thought about themselves. And they walked around like that too. Right? They walked around like they had the place of honor. And Christ confronted them about that very thing, that very heart. Jesus forcefully but lovingly shattered that false confidence. Instead, he pointed to himself. He pointed to the faith of a Roman centurion and said, look at how he trusts me. Look at the degree to which he believes in me and my power, what I can do, and my kindness, my goodness. He's come to me with this need at a desperate time. Listen, we too will be deceiving ourselves if our confidence about inclusion, why we should be included, eternally included, if our confidence is ultimately grounded in a religious experience or maybe our religious resume or maybe our Bible knowledge or maybe the godly relationships that we have. Oh, oh, yeah, Jesus, hold on a minute. Don't you know me? Because I know him and him and her and her, right? My grandmother, you know her, right? Like she was an incredible prayer warrior, so I'm her grandson, so I should be led into the kingdom, right? I mean, you see, Jesus wants to lovingly shatter these ideas and make sure that we don't give place to them. He wants to disabuse us of thinking like this. Our hope and the hope to which we point people, our hope in the face of this hard news about the outer darkness is Christ's good news about fellowship in the light. 
That's our hope, isn't it? What he said about the light. What he offered to us. The one who spoke here about that future table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he also spoke words at another table. And listen to them now. I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Luke chapter 22, verses 14 through 16. That, brothers and sisters, that, friends, is the Messiah's banquet. That's what he's talking about right there. But he can't go there until what? Until he suffers. We can't go there until he what? Suffers. You see, at the beginning, early in Matthew's gospel, as we've seen this morning, and near the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus points us to this reality of the coming banquet. But he also, for his disciples, gathered around that table, picked up the bread, he picked up the cup, and he reminded them and conveyed to them in very profoundly tangible terms that his body must be broken and his blood must be shed. That we are nourished by those things. It's the only reason that we will be nourished in the end. In fact, how could the Messianic banquet have anything better for us in terms of nourishment than what Christ already offers us? It won't. It will, it will just be a, a celebration of what Christ has already done. It will be rejoicing in that food. Whatever we, we receive, we will receive it in the wholeness that His broken body and shed blood makes possible, won't we? We'll eat with new taste buds because we're new creatures, right? We'll, we'll, we'll digest with new stomachs because we're glorified as he's been glorified, raised up to life, victor over death, amen? That's where the gospel brings us, Matthew's gospel. And so whenever we receive the bread and wine at Christ's table, we are reminding each other of the cross that was and the feast that will be, Amen? That's what we're looking towards. It shouldn't be surprising that in Matthew's gospel in chapter 27, verse 45, that it speaks there about darkness over all the land. When was that? When Jesus hung on the cross. As he hung there, it says from noon to three, it was darkness eerie, disturbing, amazing darkness over the whole land. You see, he was bearing darkness for us that we might know the light, that we might walk in the light with him and have fellowship with him in the light. As John would later say in his first letter, that's what Christ was making possible for us. That darkness was a reminder of the judgment that he bore for us that we might walk in the light. Therefore, let our confidence be in him and him alone, brothers and sisters. 
This is part of what he's reminding us. Why this outer darkness is so important. It's a hard concept. It is a hard concept. But it sobers us about the people around us. And it sobers us. It should about ourselves. It challenges us about why we think we should be included. That picture of eternal exclusion. And it drives us back. It should to the gospel. Keep taking us back to the cross. So let our confidence be in Him and Him alone that we might say with Isaiah's table guest, this is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. Amen? Amen. Would you pray with me?